0: This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, April 24th. And now... Welcome to episode 90 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are twin brothers from Champaign, Illinois. Uh, I am a Cubs fan. Paul's a White Sox fan. What's uh, what's some other good info about us, Paul? Uh, I now have a standing desk. I just made one this morning. At home? At home, yeah. What is it? What it's is... a standing treadmill desk. Oh, Oh, jeez. <laughs> you're one of those people, now? Yeah, last week I had the cold brew. This week I have the standing desk. I'm uh, truly a millennial. At work, do you have a standing desk? I do. That's what got me hooked on it. Yeah, it's it's the way to go. Aren't they pretty expensive? Uh, yeah. If you buy one, I made this one with the help of uh, another podcast listener. So thanks, Corey, if you're listening. Nice. Uh, my standing desk is uh my ironing board. <laughs> Actually it works pretty well. I put It's too low. I put a couple baseball prospectus uh <laughs> annuals uh underneath my computer. They say like there should be a ninety degree angle that your elbow makes. Like it should be no lower than that. Yeah, mine doesn't come close to that. Well, uh <laughs> that's a life update. Uh Paul, you were traveling in Chicago this past week. Anything you'd like to share with the listeners? What's uh-huh. the, what's the baseball vibe up there? I didn't catch a whole lot of the baseball vibe. I surprisingly didn't see any uh, Chris Bryant jerseys. Why just Chris Bryant? Or any Cubs jerseys in particular. But I just saw recently that Chris Bryant. (laughs) It was odd that you just said Chris Bryant. He was on my mind because I saw Friday night, they talked about his is the highest selling jersey in Major League Baseball. Uh, Paul, I have a confession. There are are things you say on this podcast sometimes where if I wasn't your brother, I would think that you weren't a diehard uh, baseball fan. Like what? Like that Chris Bryant comment. But it makes sense why he's on my mind. Uh, I suppose, but. You were with me when the stat, they were talking about it. Well, certainly, but if I I was talking to a baseball fan, uh, like a casual baseball fan, (laughs) I would expect that. Man, I didn't see any uh, any of those uh, Chris Bryant unis in Chicago. Yeah. I misspoke, I apologize. Surprisingly, didn't see any Cubs jerseys, uh, Chris Bryant included. I was the, up in Chicago for work, and I uh, was in downtown Chicago, so I would have expected to see some, and I didn't. You see any Mark Burley unis? I did not see oh, any man. Mark Burley unis. Darn. All right. Uh, well, intro to this week's podcast. No uh, no guests this week. We're uh, somebody up for next week. That was supposed to be on this week's, so uh, it'll be just as good. Maybe we'll have two guests on next week, uh, but still a lot of fun stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about baseball so far this year. I feel like we've had enough kind of uh, gameplay to really talk about some things. Well, that's interesting. That actually gets at my TWTW this week. I'm going to answer the question, uh, when do stats start to to stabilize? Well, I'll look forward to that. We have a deep dive, the 1962 Mets. I've always been fascinated by them. Uh, of course, the worst uh, kind of modern Baseball team. 40 wins. Yep. 40 and uh, and 120. 122. No, just 120. Really? Yep. Wow. Why didn't they play the last two? I believe two games were rained out. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so 20 and... Or (laughs) 40 and 120. So we're going to talk about them, talk about what kind of led up to that 1962 season. Our Baseball on TV is another Seinfeld episode. Continuing the Seinfeld month. The month of... George, month of Seinfeld, and to end the podcast, we'll talk about the first game of the 2017 MVP Baseball 2005 PS2 game. Yep, battle Paul and I have going on. Played a couple of days ago, and we'll give the the breakdown, the post game report of that game, and a pregame of uh, of today's game. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, before we begin, uh, I wanted to. Touch on a couple different things. The first one is uh, this is episode ninety of our podcast, which is pretty crazy that we've done uh, done ninety of these now, uh, pretty close to one hundred. So uh, we'll have to start planning something big for the hundredth episode. Uh, but we are done with the eighties, and like I mentioned in uh, Saturday's blog post, uh, the fact that we're done with the eighties, and I think it was the best uh, group of podcasts, the best decade of our podcast. So in the eighties, we had. Uh, Craig Edwards of Fangraphs as a guest, Dan Rosenheck of The Economist, Michael Coffin, uh, the uh, Astros AA announcer, uh, and uh, of course, podcast legend, Eric Roseberry, and then uh, <laughs> some random Royals fans, had a Cubs and White Sox expert that were both great. Uh, we started Deep Dive as a segment, which has been one of my favorite things to prepare for, uh, and then we did our Pocota over-under game. Mm-hmm. Uh, was as, There was also well. a, a Brothers podcast in there, right? That's right. Yeah. So we, uh, we uh, right at the beginning of the 80s, we picked our 2017 Brothers Road Trip destination, mm-hmm. which is uh, San Francisco. So, yeah, uh, I, I would a, agree with that. A great decade. Uh, some others that that might rival it. The 40s, Dan Winkler, Braves pitcher, mm-hmm. joined us, the only uh, MLB player we've had on. Uh, also, Cubs expert Ryan Watts. Uh, the 19, <laughs> 1950s, the podcast 50s. Uh, Will Leach uh was on had our brother's road trip podcast and then rob Maine's who uh remains in my top few podcast interviews uh the 70s we had uh our first 10 guest playoff podcast uh zach mezell and uh the cubs won the world series that would probably be my second favorite because uh the cubs won the world series Hmm. so i'm going 80s and then 70s and then 40s because of dan winkler and uh and then, then the 50s your all-time favorite interview would have to be uh the relevant guy right uh jesse carey he'd be second i like dan winkler i went back and listened to that interview again this week because i am an ego maniac <laughs> um but also this is like the the one-year anniversary of that interview with him so uh, i'll link to it in the podcast episode page but uh go go uh, check that out i've also thought on our soundcloud soundcloud page i think i'm just gonna Put like our best interviews there, so they're easily accessible. When That's I it's crazy, we've been around to them. We've been around long enough to have a best of series. Yeah, so you would agree the '80s were our best. Yes, uh, my favorite podcast was the the podcast after the Cubs won the World Series. Mm-hmm. I felt that like that was the most excited I've been to talk. Not that I'm not excited to talk every week, but like I actually like was like pumped for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Alright, uh our Nelly update, uh quickly here, A uh, pretty slow on the news uh the Nelly news front. Uh his son had prom this past weekend. And I know this because Nelly posted six Instagrams of his son and his date to the prom. Uh his son is named Cornell Haynes the third. Of course Nelly's real name is Cornell Haynes the Second. I guess that would be Junior, right? Mm-hmm. Cornell Haynes Junior. Right. His son goes by Trey, though. You can find him uh his son on Twitter at T underscore trizzle one. Am I he, remembering right? Is he the guy who's like, could be a decent college player? Uh, he is a football player. He has a huddle, you know, like highlight reel mm-hmm. starts off with him making a somewhat decent tackle in practice. <laughs> and I couldn't find any scholarship offers for him. So I don't think maybe I'm thinking is it teacher. Snoop Snoop Dogg's son? Yeah, I think did he sign with USC. Okay. All right. Also a little NBA slice. Nellie tweeted the other day that Phil Jackson is a clown. Dot, 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 exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I am now thoroughly convinced that Pop, all caps, is the greatest NBA coach ever. Hmm. I got into that conversation recently that, you know, does what Jackson has done over the last few years tarnish his reputation? The, the answer is no in that conversation. Oh, the answer is certainly yes. I don't know. 11 championships is. It's sort of like did Casey Stengel ruin his reputation <laughs> by going to the 1962 Mets? I mean, it has to change your perception. Very, very similar, it. actually. Change your perception of them somewhat. A little bit, but I just feel like 30 years from now, most people will remember the '11 championships and not. Oh, the... I, I will remember. I mean, I'll remember those, but I'll also remember how bad of a evaluator he was. Yeah. Maybe the takeaway is that he was a great coach, but not a great like evaluator team he's also so old uh well let's get into baseball uh just a few things for me uh biggest thing i had is eric uh thames 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 is what i've heard eric thames so he's a 30 year old first baseman for the brewers and i wrote about him this past week uh and we talked about him last week too he hasn't played in the major since 2012 played in korea the last three years signed a three-year contract with the Brewers, uh, and is uh, still just tearing up mm-hmm. uh, nationally pitching. He is fourth in average in baseball at .373 going into Sunday, third in on-base percentage at .479, and first in slugging at .881. Teams have uh, stopped throwing to him. This past week he had t- uh, two three-walk games, one against the Cubs and one against the Cardinals. Um, and the Brewers... Uh, as a team have 33 home runs, which is the most in baseball. Uh, So uh, I'm, this is probably like the thing I'm most intrigued to watch this year, or if he, if he can keep it up and just to see how his production, you know, he's like the MVP right now. Mm -hmm. And that would be a crazy MVP story. Yeah. I actually had him written down here too. You mentioned he leads in slugging. He actually leads in like five or six different categories, extra base hits, home runs, total bases, runs scored. So, yeah, I I agree, MVP. Um, curious to get your thought on Lackey's statement. <laughs> well, that's, I'm going to cover that in out of the box. Great. I think of the two, uh, Lackey's comment was not as bad as Cubs pitching coach Chris is. Mm-hmm. But I'll cover that in out of the box. Another kind of out of the nowhere guy uh, that I. Classic out of the nowhere guy. Yes. I have written down uh, Mitch. <laughs> Again, Han- sports fan. <laughs> casual sports fan. Mitch Hanniger. What a casual sports fan who Mitch Haniger is. No, again, you redeem yourself. But a casual sports fan would say, "Out of the nowhere guy." <laughs> uh, he is a 26-year-old uh, outfielder. He played in 30 games last year for the Diamondbacks, but then was included in a trade to the Mariners. He was kind of a throw-in with the Segura Taiwan Walker trade, mm-hmm. and he made a couple of tweaks uh, late in his minor league career to his uh, swing path, similar to th- you know the what. Well, ryan zimmerman has done and daniel murphy did of of getting more lift on balls and so far this year he's he's doing fantastic uh on base percentage over 400 slugging percentage over 550 you know ops of near a thousand you know a guy that the mariners desperately need um, somebody in the outfield that can hit um it's not really paying off in their wins and losses but um, an excellent trade and i think if any of you play fantasy and he's not already picked up, I would definitely go and uh, pick him up right away. Mitch Haniger again, 26-year-old outfielder for the Mariners. All right, uh, Sterling Marte was busted. 80 games for steroids, can't play in the playoffs if the Pirates make it, which seems unlikely now that uh, Marte is out for 80 games. I don't have a ton to say about this. I mean, it's a bummer, but he cheated, so he deserves what he got. I thought it was fascinating to see, uh, you know, McCutcheon was never happy about moving from center to right uh for, for Marte to move over to center, but his first game back in center field, did you see the highlight of him? Uh he makes an amazing catch, a really good catch, and then you can uh, read his lips saying, like center field is mine. Um so this is my spot. This is my spot, yeah. So uh you can tell McCutcheon loves to be in center field and I actually think uh Marte's suspension makes it more likely that the Pirates will trade McCutcheon hmm. uh, this season. Um, again, he'll be a free agent after next year, and I think the Pirates are going to want kind of peak return on, on him. I like McCushion a lot, and it bumps me out that they have to trade him. Uh, what contender would he be like the most fun hmm. addition to? I haven't thought about it a ton. I mean, the Giants strike me as a team. That, I mean, they're not contenders. Well, so. They're 6 and 12, so and their best pitcher's out probably N- for the season. Need I remind you that the White Sox started. Last year is the second best team in baseball. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. The Yankees, maybe possibly. Yeah, Ellsbury, I guess, yeah. I mean the Cubs, if like Elmora and Jay uh really fall off, then I guess they could be It's a good question though, because you I mean you assume the Pirates are gonna try trading him, but at some point you need to assess like who needs a center exactly. fielder. Well, and it doesn't have to be center field too. It could be right. I mean his best value would be a corner spot. Because, I mean, he's bad. He's a bad center fielder. But that's his spot. (laughs) Okay. A couple other nuggets that I had. The Red Sox had just eight home runs going into Sunday. I think they hit a couple against the Orioles today. But, yeah, I mean, compared to the Brewers, 33. Obviously not a good start. Uh, Manny Machado, what would you make of that slide Friday against the, the Red Sox? I think it's probably intentional, but it wasn't, like, nasty intentional. Um Yeah, I don't think it's anything. No no retaliation so far, but that'll be a thing to monitor um, between the the Orioles and the Red Sox, two teams that don't like each other already because they play each other so much. Uh, Last thing I had uh, before we look at standings, uh, Christopher Blake Buckner, commonly known as uh, C.B. Buckner, Mm -hmm. had a rough week. The Nationals-Braves game uh, earlier this week, he, uh, he called Jason Worth out on a strikeout where no pitch ever was inside the zone, but called three looking strikes. And then uh, to end the game, uh Braves player swung and missed on a ball that was in the dirt. Braves guy runs to first. They throw to first. Game over. Uh, a couple minutes after that, they have to call off the grounds crew and everyone because Buckner claims that the hitter foul-tipped it, which apparently is not reviewable because hmm. they didn't look at it. Um, did you see this? Uh, I saw several outlets write about it. Okay, but... yeah. Uh, I mean, after the game, the the Braves manager said <laughs> that the hitter was like a, a few feet from hitting it, and if you look at the replay, nowhere close to foul tipping it. Nationals eventually won, but um, Worth had some real uh, pointed statements after the game. And I looked, and 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 Buckner was voted the worst ump in baseball in a 2003 survey, a 2006 survey, and a 2010 survey. Yeah, in my mind, CB Buckner and uh... Angel Hernandez have always been the two worst. Actually, and we've gotten into this discussion before, I actually don't know of many other umpires. Joe West, obviously. Upper Noah. But yeah, it's not not surprising to see him do poorly. Mm -hmm. So uh, just looking at the standings, I had a, a couple thoughts. You know, We're only a few weeks into the season, so you can't tell a ton, like you were saying with the Giants. So I've got three different categories of teams that I'm starting to categorize them by. So first, teams that are good. Uh, So these are the teams that I know are going to be really good this year. They're going to be contenders, going to make the playoffs. I've got four teams so far. The Astros, we have a plus 12 run differential. That offense is loaded. Keichel has showed me enough to know that their rotation is not going to be a disaster. So they're in that category. The Nationals are in that category. They've won seven in a row, plus 14 run uh, differential. Murphy's good. Zimmerman had a great resurgence. Harper has had uh one of his best starts to his career third team is the Indians they're at plus thirteen and uh they've played well, but also the rest of the central like there's no team that really stands out the royals mm-hmm. uh, offense has been atrocious uh the Tigers are getting by with smoke and mirrors i mean they've got the what happened to your twins last week they've got the <laughs> the Tigers have the worst run differential in American league and uh are still nine and eight somehow and then the twins yeah they suck uh now that we talked about them. And then lastly the Yankees. They have the best mm-hmm. run differential in baseball, at plus thirty one. And uh I'm I'm just convinced that they're there to stay. Uh second category. Um yeah. Do you have comments? Well, I'll wait until you're done. Okay. Second category is teams that are bad. Only have three teams for this, and you're gonna disagree with one of them. Uh one is the the Blue Jays. Uh they're nine games back of first place already. Minus twenty one run differential. Padres, worse than the National League, get minus 29. And then last lastly, the Giants, they're 6-12, and 12, negative 12 run differential. Madison Bumgardner Gardner uh, hurt his shoulder on a dirt bike this past week, and the team fears that he might be out for the season. I guess we'll, we'll probably know more to start this week. Uh, but to me, yeah, I don't see how they um, get back into contention with the Rockies and the uh, Diamondbacks playing so well, and mm-hmm. the Dodgers, you know, I assume the Dodgers will still win the division. Third category is the underdogs, teams that are fun to root for. Three teams right now. The A's, who have won five in a row, and they are 10-8. and eight. If they're good at all, I feel like they're always the team I'm going to root for outside the Cubs. Second is the Diamondbacks. They're 12-7. and seven. They have a plus-26 run differential, which is the best in the National League. And then lastly, the, the Rockies. They're 12-6, and six, half game better than the Diamondbacks, but their run differential is only plus-2. So I have doubts that they can sustain it. Again, they're not usually all that good. Uh so it's fun to to see them succeed. Yeah, I I went into that thinking that you were categorizing every team. Nope. Um surprised you didn't just double check. You didn't list the Cubs? Yeah, I they're I mean, I'm pretty sure they'll be really good, but their rotation has had a lot of holes to start the year and they've come back in a lot of these games like this past week. Uh they won Two series against the Brewers and the Reds, but pretty much all their wins were kind of these heroic late mm-hmm. inning comebacks. I feel like they're going to have like one of the best offenses of all time. Sure, but I mean Hendricks is topping out in the mid eighties. Lackey was bad against the Reds today. He's got an ERA close to five. Hmm. Uh, Brett Anderson, you can't really trust. I mean Lester and Arietta or have been solid. Arietta had a rough outing this past week. His velocity's way down. That I mean that's my concern with them is is mm-hmm. pitching. How's that Mike Montgomery prediction coming? Uh, give him time. Can you remind the listeners what your prediction was? I predicted that he'd be the Cubs' third best starter, mm-hmm. and he's been pretty bad out of the bullpen this year. He has. He just need he needs a solid uh, role. Needs to know his role. Um, what, what do you think of my categories? Uh, they were good. I think the Rockies uh, should not be in the underdog category. I would be shocked if the Rockies make the playoffs. Wow. Um, well, I mean, last week you asked, Twins, Reds, Rockies, who's most likely to make the playoffs? Oh, comparatively, yeah. Against well, I'm, the, I'm switching my pick. I said the Twins last week, but they suck and the Reds suck, so I'm, <laughs> I'm all in on the Rockies of those three. Yeah, other than the Rockies, I generally agree. Um, the Diamondbacks have been, I think, the most like, surprising, um, surprisingly legit team. I think they've got a real chance. Cubs, White Sox. Uh, White Sox had a rough week. Uh, Haven't scored for like 25 innings. Yeah. Worst uh, on base percentage in baseball at uh, 265. Yes. uh, Not good. Their prize prospect, center fielder Jacob May, went, I think, 0 for his first 30 uh, in the big leagues. Finally got his first hit. Um, He (laughs) he tweeted out afterwards uh, something about God's timing being perfect. Um, Nice. Yeah. Cubs note so far this year, they have the fourth youngest batters. So average age of their batters is 27.2 years old, fourth youngest in baseball. Uh, but they have the second oldest pitcher's age hmm. in baseball at 31.4. Reflects their uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, attendance updates. Uh, last week I mentioned that uh, attendance so far this year was up 4%. That's uh, dropped down to 1.7 going into Sunday. So, again, it's normalizing, like I said last week. The Orioles, though, have not normalized Last week, they were up 11,000 fans per game. That number is now uh, up to 13,737. Wow. So over the course of uh, around 10 games, it's like 130,000 more fans. Need to get a correspondent on the ground, see what's going on. Yeah, but, yeah, that's a good idea. The White Sox are up uh, close to 5,000 fans per game. That is surprising. <laughs> wonder if that's mostly weather-related. Maybe. Uh, it's a bigger jump than the Indians have had so far. That's crazy. The White Sox did offer an insanely good deal, uh, all 13 home April games for $39. That's pretty good. (laughs) That's really good. Uh, David Ross updates, uh, last thing I had before baseball on TV. Uh, He did a Magic Mike stripper routine on Dancing with the Stars this past week. So just saying, people, this is what you're supporting. He's not a good guy. But I I think moving forward, we need to... Uh, we need to like disown him from the podcast. No, I'm saying I'm going to give an update every week and I'm going to show people his true colors. I didn't know that before the podcast. So now you've you've put that in my way. I hope that your opinion opinion of him has been negatively shaped by that. Uh, Fits in with a narrative that's already in my mind. Of of him doing a stripper routine on Dancing with the Stars? Of him doing, I assume he's doing something like that with Dancing with the Stars. If you recall on Saturday Night Live, he also did a weird... He was uh, twerking. Well, but with... He was like a stripper, him and Dexter Fowler and Rizzo. Right, yeah. So I'm just saying, something's there. Jumping into baseball on TV. uh, Again, we are looking at Seinfeld exclusively this month. Uh, For this week, we looked at season seven, episode four The Wink is the name of the episode. This episode uh, details uh, sort of uh, consequences after George gets a grapefruit um, seed in his eye. Maybe it's not even a seed, just grapefruit juice in his eye. It's pulp. So it it stings his left eye, and for the rest of the episode, uh, he is inadvertently winking, and it gets him into all sorts of problems. Uh, The baseball-related storyline is that George, as assistant traveling secretary, was responsible for getting uh, George Steinbrenner's birthday card signed by everyone in the organization. Again, because of the... As a side here, uh, my former employer did these birthday cards where everyone had to sign it. It was the worst thing ever Hmm. because uh, like you just signed your name. That means nothing. Yeah. When you get a card and there's like no message behind it and you know, everyone does it. Like if you sign all these cards and then you get a birthday card, you know that everyone has to do it.
1: Yeah. I tend to agree. Pretty lame.
0: Yeah. There's gotta be some personal aspect to it. Sure. A note or something. Anyways, uh, because of the inadvertent winking, uh, George ends up giving the card to Kramer. Uh, Kramer interprets uh, the wink and a statement George makes as allowing him to sell this birthday card again with signatures from everyone in the organization, including you know Don Mattingly and and others. Um, so he he goes and sells it to uh, this memorabilia guy for two hundred dollars. The memorabilia guy then sells it to a boy in the hospital named Bobby. Not exactly sure what Bobby's ailment is, but You know, he's bedridden, down on his luck.
1: Polio is what I was thinking. Yeah, he's pretty
0: hopeful still. You know, a very optimistic uh, young boy, probably eight or nine years old. So then Kramer has to go. George obviously needs to get the card to Steinbrenner. Um, So Kramer has to go to this boy, and to get the card back, he promises uh, the boy that his favorite player, Paul O'Neill, will hit two home runs in the next game. Uh, And so... uh, this ends up uh, almost happening. Paul O'Neill hits one home run, and his last at bat, he hits a ball to the warning track, uh, ends up scoring. Initially, they think it's an inside the park home run, then is ruled a triple with a throwing error. It's a very good explanation of the episode. Yes, we we watched this uh, right before the episode, so I'm or right before we're recording, so I'm trying to piece everything together. Um, Bobby ends up giving the card over. Uh, because Kramer promises Bobby that Paul O'Neill will catch a ball in his hat the next game, I believe. And that is how the episode ends. Very detailed. Yes. Any, uh, any questions, Pete? Any questions? I watched it. Anything to add, I About should 10 say? ten minutes ago. Uh, no, you're good. Um, the clip we'll play this week is uh, Kramer's conversation with Bobby in the hospital. What if I get Paul O'Neill to hit a home run tomorrow just for you?
1: Really? Paul O'Neill would do that? For you, he would. Could he get two home runs? <laughs> two? Exactly. Sure, kid. Yeah, but then you got to promise you'll do something for me. I know. Get out of this bed one day and walk again. Yeah, that would be nice. But I really just need the car.
0: As I mentioned for TWTW this week, I am looking at or looking to answer the question: At what point in a season can we start trusting the numbers? And uh, to do this, I'm borrowing uh, heavily from baseball researcher Russell Carleton. Uh, he now works for Baseball Prospectus, but 10 years ago, back in 2007, he uh, did a you know a fascinating and in some ways groundbreaking study. He looked at nearly every statistic, both hitting and pitching, but Carlton was looking to uh, to answer this question as well. At what point can you start to trust the numbers? You know, For example, last year, Matt Laotos and, and Jason Hamill were both in the top 20 in baseball and ERA through the month of April. You know, neither of them ended there so we're just we're trying to assess you know at what point can you um, begin to lock in on a, a particular trend with a player this week i'll look at offensive numbers and then next week i'll look at um, uh, pitchers um, so for hitting stats there's basically three tiers chronologically uh you know of when you can start to to lock in and trust uh, a certain metric so i'll go in order um the first tier is around 150 plate appearances. The numbers that you can begin to trust at that at that time of the season would be uh, swing rate, contact rate, strikeout rate, and pitches per plate appearance. Kind of what Dan Rosenheck said, right, with spring training stuff? Right, yep. Um. So, you know, three weeks into the season, we're right around 60 or 70 plate appearances for regular, everyday players. So it's still too early to... Um, to really start trusting any of those numbers, but around this time in uh, in May, uh, we'll be able to say with confidence that, you know, for example, Bryce Harper, you know, his five his percent drop in strikeout rate is still legit, or you know, uh, Avi Garcia making more contact, it, you know, that's a legit thing. But like I said, we're still about a month away, according to Carlton. Uh, the second tier is around 250 plate appearances, that'd be like mid June. The the numbers that you can start to trust at that point are walk rate, ground ball rate, fly ball rate, and home run rate. So I think more uh, power, um, extra base hits, and then the third tier, which is 500 plate appearances, which is essentially uh, you know end of August, towards the end of the season, are on base percentage, slugging percentage. So uh, you really have to hold off judgment on on those more commonly used numbers, OBP and slugging, until until really late in the season, almost the end of the year really interesting research i think for any fantasy players out there this is super helpful Um, but then also if you know if your favorite team has a guy that has seemingly made an offseason adjustment and it's showing up in the numbers again i I would suggest holding off judgment until carlton says the numbers stabilize the hard thing as a fantasy player though is you draft guys that you think are going to be good and then you have to hold off like you said a month or two Mm -hmm. and uh if they're not good still, then you kind right. of shafted. Right. It depends, you know, how competitive your league is. But a guy I mentioned earlier, like Mitch Haniger, you could begin to make assessments about his, uh, you know, strikeout rate and power, uh, in mid-May and into early June. So, possibly, if he if he's still available, you can snag him. Sure. All right, uh, my out-of-the-box this week, uh, again, like I said last week, I'm going to start with my favorite post that I wrote in the previous week. My favorite post to write this week was uh, entitled, Boston Has Their New Pedro, and that looked at the simulators between Chris Sale and Pedro Martinez, which are very kind of weird how how similar they are before they got traded to the uh, Red Sox. Uh, But in Pedro's first four starts with the um, Red Sox 98 after getting traded from the Expos, he threw 32 innings, had 44 strikeouts, had a .5 whip, and only gave up three earned runs. And Sale, so far this year, has pitched 30 innings, 42 strikeouts, .7 whip, and uh, three earned runs. Uh, So that's 30 versus 32 innings, 42 versus 44 strikeouts, 0.7 0.7 whip versus a 0.5 whip, and then both gave up 300 runs. Um, so again, I mean they're both just really good, but it is crazy how much mm-hmm. uh, similarity there is between those those two. Uh, but my uh, other article this week is Grant Brisby. He would be on my uh, baseball writer Mount Rushmore. Mm. Like him, Sam Miller, probably like Ben Lindbergh and Will Leach. It's like my mm-hmm. personal. I throw Tyler Kepner in there. Not a fan. Uh, Anyway, he wrote an article entitled, A Couple of the Cubs Are Being Total Weenies About Eric Thames and PEDs. Uh, So Eric Thames has been on a tear, like we've talked about. And uh, both Cubs pitching coach Chris Abazio and uh, Cubs pitcher John Lackey gave some weird comments after Thames uh, hit well against the Cubs this week and the, the Brewers beat Lackey on uh, monday nights lackey didn't pitch very well uh so bazio i'll go first with his quote uh he did this i think on a radio interview he said well the bottom line is thames has hit the ball and we got to figure out a way to get around it all the other stuff i'll let other people worry about it but he's doing stuff that i haven't seen done for a long time you start thinking about ken griffey jr manny ramirez when he went to the dodgers barry bonds you're talking about some of the greatest players to ever play this game so yeah it's probably a head scratcher because nobody knows who the guy is And when he was here before, his body has changed. But like I said, I'll leave that to everyone else. And we're just going to try to worry about how to pitch him better and get him out. And then Lackey said, You watch film on recent stuff and try to figure out a way, you know, to get him out. But I mean, really, even the homer he hit the other way, I mean, you don't see that happen here very often. That's kind of one of those things that makes you scratch your head. So a lot of head scratching on the Cubs. Uh, If you watch... The homer that he hit against Lackey, it was a terrible pitch. It was right down the middle. And uh, Brisby makes a good comment. He's like, (laughs) make a better pitch. He doesn't hit a home run. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lackey hasn't been good this year. I mean, the Reds just scored seven runs off him today. But it was like the wind was blowing in or something, right? Wind was was blowing in, and he hit it the other way. But, like, it wasn't that crazy that he hit that home run. Basio's comments to me are the weird ones. In the list of players he gives, Ken Griffey Jr., like, Manny and Barry, is he saying that Griffey was on steroids, or is he just saying that Manny, yeah. Barry, and Griffey are like the best hitters ever? That's that's my uh, interpretation, but then the whole Manny going to the Dodgers yeah. is bizarre. Because he was on steroids with, with the Dodgers, and but it was he, great. He would have been better with the Red Sox. Manny, when he first went to the Dodgers, though, was that's... phenomenal, and then they gave him a big contract, and that's when they found out about the steroids. It, yeah. I, in my mind, he had very similar years with the Red Sox as he had with the Dodgers, but Yeah, uh, just the Griffey. Griffey, Manny, and Barry, I'm not sure what the connection between those three is. Uh, But Brisby makes a good quote, and I'll end with this. Uh, He says, uh, If you want to waste your time being so sure that every surprising, out-of-nowhere baseball player is dirty, go for it. I'll be over here enjoying the hell out of these surprising, out-of-nowhere baseball players. In 20 years, we'll look back and see how many times you were proven right, and we'll compare that with how much more fun I had watching baseball. I thought that was spot on. Get Over Yourself, Chris Basio, and John Lackey. uh, Wow, strong words. Guys surprise every year. And the Cubs surprised last year and in 2015. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Arietta, you know, when Stephen A said that he was on steroids, Cubs fans complained about that, and rightfully so. Like, you can't just throw Mm -hmm. those jabs out there without any proof. Yeah, no, I agree. There's not much joy that you get out of predicting someone was on steroids. So if you're right and Thames is roiding, well, that sucks. You know this out of nowhere guy, the the Brewers signed to a three year contract. You know, is using performance enhancing drugs, but then if you're wrong, that's also, I don't know. So I feel like there's a middle ground. You don't have to be blindly naive, and you mm-hmm. also don't have to be super cynical all the time. Yep, and Thames is actually a really funny guy. Like I, I listened to a few interviews he gave this week, and he's super genuine. He uh, answers questions well. Isn't afraid I think his time in Korea like kind of opened him up to not being so politically correct and or not giving cliche answers. so uh, we'll end uh, this segment uh, with a little clip he gave from uh, intentional talk on MLB Network this past week and then we'll go into TWTW. Uh,
1: over here of course, we have the seventh inning stretch. Uh, over in Korea, we understand that they take a break in the middle of the baseball game for what? Yeah, um, well, it's it's a break, but a lot of people tend to go off and smoke cigarettes. So it's just, I mean, I guess it's like that um, a lot in Korea and Japan as well. Just, you know, a lot of smokers, like smoking is more prominent. So, yeah, like it's it's different. It's a lot different, but I think it's interesting. You get a little five-minute break, so that's nice. Okay, now wait a second. Are you telling me, like, everybody clears the field and the players and the manager? I mean, are you telling me that Jim Leland should be managing over in Korea because of this? (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, usually the guys on the bench will go out on the field and they all start stretching and getting loose. But, yeah, the starters, the coaches, they all go to their areas and either hang out or smoke cigarettes or, I mean whatever. I mean, like my, my first time I saw that, I was like, like, what's going on? Is the game canceled? Is it like a delay? What's going on? Like, oh no, it's a break. And I kind of realized what they were doing. I was like, oh, okay, well that's, that's interesting. All right. That's pretty cool. Oh, that is cool, man. But you know, what was cool, <laughs> what was cool. And I might need you to bring back, are the gold shin guards and the gold elbow guard? I don't know about them, you, but these <laughs> will match the Brewers unit. You got the same colors you had over there, also. Actually, the equipment, <laughs> Jason Chauger, the equipment manager from Milwaukee, told me to bring it. He said, bring it and wear it. And I said, I will be wearing 95 in the ribs every single at bat. I'm not even going to touch those. No chance. No chance. <laughs> oh, those are sweet. Though. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win.
0: Uh, I actually already gave my (laughs) TWTW. Again, it was Russell Carlton's research. But uh, my out of the box, I failed to give. Um, was about Dallas Keuchel. The the article is from FanGraphs. Jeff, Jeff Sullivan wrote a piece entitled Dallas Keuchel is going full Ziegler. Uh Pete you touched on this earlier, but in my opinion one of the most important players in all of baseball uh definitely the American League this year is is Keuchel. Um you know when he he pitches like he did in 2015 when he won the Cy Young um the Astros I think are prime for a World Series run. Their offense is really deep and really talented. Um, but you know, they need an ace. They need somebody to pitch 220 plus innings like he did in 2015. Um, but when he pitches like he did in 2016, when he had a 4.55 era, just through 170 innings, I think they're nothing more than maybe a fringe wildcard contender. So he's a really important player. And, uh, I've been intrigued early this season. Um, by whether he's going to pitch poorly or pitch well so far so good uh over his first four starts he's given up just three runs kind of a chris sale like start uh you know that's an era of 0.96 um, and in this piece specifically sullivan takes a deeper look at how keichel is is having so much success and it's actually pretty fascinating um keichel is having success this year in, you know three main ways but the most interesting to me is that he's pitching more out of the strike zone than any pitcher in baseball, so his rate of pitches thrown outside the strike zone is 70 percent, which just you know boggles your mind. That means for every five pitches, less than two are actually you know in the strike zone. Or How about for every 10 Seven <laughs> of them are outside the zone? Um, so conceivably if teams took on him, he would walk every batter he faces. Um, he's also the leader in ground ball rate which is kind of a return to 2015. Now, I know you provided last week's research about scoring after blowouts to Theo. Have you sent the, uh, this research to hitting coaches in I have the American not. League? Um, finally, Keuchel is second in baseball in low pitch rate, which means the percentage of pitches you throw that are um, in the lower third of the zone uh, or lower out of the zone. So second in that. So um, he, you know, he's throwing more pitches out of the zone and throwing lower and I think what's really fascinating about this is that more and more players are looking for those pitches as guys change their swing path and have more uppercut approaches and are looking to to hit more fly balls. They're looking to hit low pitches. Um, And, you know, more pitchers are recognizing that and going higher in the zone where where Keiko is taking the opposite approach and he's actually throwing lower and lower um, so much so that he's, you know, only throwing strikes 30% of the time. So, It'll be interesting to see if Keichel can continue dominating and if, if teams catch on. Um I assume they're aware of kind of his attack method. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what approach hitters take on him in the future. Yeah, that's good. That that could work for uh, TWTW as well as out of the box. Thank you. <laughs> uh who is the article by? Jeff Sullivan. Got it. All right. Uh well that was a good uh kind of TWTW uh this Tuesday is the anniversary of uh Hawk's uh, rant on MLB Network Hmm So was, how, did, how did you know that? Social media? Yeah, four years ago uh, This Tuesday We'll we'll tweet about it But he gave the uh, The famous TWTW speech It's amazing In four years We haven't advanced At all On that Stat What do you mean? TWTW Oh, TWTW Yeah, if you could If you could put it all I together thought you, I thought you were if you could interface those I thought you were like Agreeing with Hawkins Saying that We haven't advanced In like advanced metrics at all It's not ready 50 years <laughs> All right, uh, next up is Sounds of the Game.
1: So the winning run is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson.
0: Little roller up along first,
1: behind the bag! It gets through Buckner! Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it!
0: Well, that was uh, Vince Scully calling the 1986 World Series That's how game six ended. Uh, Of course, the Mets beat the Red Sox in that game and then go on to win game seven in the World Series. Um, So an ode to Vin. Uh, We still still miss you. Uh, uh, Wish that you were still calling baseball games. All right, my sounds of the game this week comes from a blog post that I wrote over the past week. Uh, It was my top bunts of all time. This upcoming week, I'm going to do the worst bunts, or the worst bunt attempts of all time. It might be an even better list. But my top two bunts, uh, number two was Jake Taylor's bunt to win a game. Is that like a wild card? Mm-hmm. I feel like all those movies, you end up...
1: One game wild card?
0: Yeah, you end up making the playoffs, but they don't show anything further than that. Uh, so here is uh, uh, Bob Euker's call in uh, in Major League.
1: Taylor waits at the plate. The Duke at the belt, Hayes away from second. Here comes the 1-1 pitch. <clears throat> Taylor Bunt!
0: of all time Paul did you agree with this Uh, do you recall the bunt I do not recall the number one bunt Mm, did you read the post I did read the post I don't believe you Uh, it was the uh, Oakland A's they won game one of the ALDS in 2003 so the situation is uh, bottom of the 12th tie game Uh, bases are loaded with two outs and the A's catcher Ramon Hernandez comes up this is like kind of middle of the money ball era uh, and uh, so A's are playing at home. Game one, tie game. Bottom of the twelfth. Base is loaded. Two outs, and this happens.
1: Bluff at third by Chavez, and a bunt. Third base side. Miller charging. Fairhand quick up. Can't make the play. A's win.
0: All right, uh, next up, we have a deep dive. We're going to talk about the 1962 Mets.
1: Meet the Mets, meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kitties, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball, knocking those home.
0: Okay, so the 1962 Mets, it was the first season as a franchise uh, after 1957. Uh, that's when the, the the Giants and Dodgers moved to California. Uh, both teams were previously from New York. And so that left New York City without a National League team uh, until the Mets came in 1962. Uh, prominent lawyer William Shea brought the team back. Of course, Shea... Uh, um, had the, the stadium named after him, Shea Stadium, uh, but that didn't come until the 1965 season. Uh, so the way the Mets came to be is, uh, Shea teamed up with, uh, Branch Rickey, who had been retired. Uh, he's, you know, obviously famous for bringing Jackie Robinson into baseball, but he was retired. So Shea convinced him to come out of retirement and, uh, try to start this uh, third Baseball League. So you had the National League, American League, and then they were going to start the Continental League. And uh, games in that league were going to start in 1961. Both the American League and National League were worried, and so they agreed to expand. They brought the Angels and Washington Senators into the American League in 1961, and then they brought the Mets and the uh, Colt 45s, Mm -hmm. uh, which came to be the Astros, in 1962. Uh, Shay uh, and uh, George Steinbrenner were uh, were lifelong buddies. The Mets' colors—I didn't know this before—I I read this on Wikipedia. Uh, so the Mets' colors are blue and orange, but it's the Dodger blue and the Giants' orange. Hmm, how that's, about that? That's how you get the logo, and that's that's where what they were thinking when they when they came up with that logo. Yeah, and they actually played their first two seasons at the Polo Grounds which, if you haven't seen pictures of what that looked like, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, that was the one with a deep center field. Right? Really deep center field, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's famous because Willie Mays made the over-the-shoulder catch, catch, catch there. there yeah. I wonder, why didn't they play at uh, Ebbets Field? I assume it had already been torn down. Really? I feel like that's the more iconic one today. Mm-hmm. That's what I think of. Yeah, That was the, the Brooklyn Dodgers, that's where they played. Yeah, so they played the first two years in the Polo Grounds before moving to Shea Stadium, which has now been uh torn down for Citi Field. Uh Meet the Mets, which you heard to to start the segment, that song was written in 1961 to prepare for the the Mets. And I think it's a it's an interesting dynamic. Uh you've got a city where you you know you have two th- kind of thriving fan bases, the the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants were pretty popular teams. They move and then you have the Mets come in. I wonder if their fans were born out of those two franchises. Like, I wonder if that's why they were were able to have so much excitement around getting a team again. Be like if the Cubs and White Sox both left, and then you brought mm-hmm. in one team, you'd have like double the fans. Yeah, without the technology we have today, it would be nearly impossible to follow a team. Yeah, that's right. You know, back in the '60s, it would have been like if you wanted to follow a team, it had to be you know critical that you can actually like go see them in person. Otherwise you would never see like your favorite players play like you mm, just or read the radio it. and you wouldn't be able to get games on the radio yeah something we take for granted no uh so the the um, colt 45s which became the astros and the mets had a expansion draft which i always find fascinating mm-hmm. these older expansion drafts are less interesting because i don't <laughs> recognize any of the names but i'm sure we'll talk about other expansion drafts in the 90s later this year on the podcast Uh, But they had an expansion draft, and due to the poor performance of the Mets and the Astros, after two seasons, uh, another uh, expansion draft had to take place. So the the Mets and the Astros were so bad their first two seasons that uh, they had another expansion draft. And the way that the draft worked is the um, existing National League teams uh, could make four players from their 40-man roster available for $30,000 a piece, the Mets and the Astros could draft from them. So, like, the Cubs would pick their four worst players on their 40-man roster and make them available, and then the the two expansion teams could could draft Mm -hmm. uh, from all the National League worst four players. Um, And then only eight players could be selected between the two clubs. Right. And their philosophy uh, in drafting... um... In the expansion draft was to to get older players that had ties to either the Giants or the Dodgers, hmm. which resulted in just an atrocious team. Um, we'll, well, well, the first, Frank Thomas. I he was like good. He, he was their best, but they, they traded for him. He, I guess he wasn't an expansion He was player. good. Yeah, their their first overall pick was a catcher, um, and he uh, only played, I think, 23 games that season, so he got hurt. And then, yeah, we can get into some more of the numbers later, but... Uh, the players they got were not good. Mm-hmm. Uh let's let's look at some of the numbers uh from this team uh like we said earlier they went 20 and 140 40, 40 and 120. <laughs> I keep I keep butchering that. I feel like the common thing I've always heard is you know going into a season you know you're going to you're going to win 40 and lose 40. It's mm-hmm. about what you do with the other 80 games and uh the Mets proved that well yeah i've heard it like Barely you know right. 60, 16, and then it's what you do with the <laughs> other 40 but yeah with the Mets yeah maybe that's what i'm thinking of uh yeah so they went uh 40 and 120 it was the uh worst team or the most losses since 1899 the cleveland spiders which i mean this is worth talking about later but they were atrocious in 1899 the, the cleveland spiders lost like 135 games mm-hmm. and had a run differential of minus 723. <laughs> the closest since then has been the Red Sox in 1932 at minus 349. So, less than half of that. Right. The uh the, the team that's come closest to 40 lo- or 40 wins or you know 120 <laughs> losses was the uh um 2003 Tigers. Mm-hmm. They went 43 and 119. Yeah, but they had a, a minus 337 run differential. Uh, the 1962 Mets had a uh, run differential of minus 340. So they're kind of right on par with the Tigers and the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. In 32, Spiders were definitely the worst team in baseball history. The I thought it was interesting. The Mets had losing streaks of 17, uh, 13, and 11. And their longest winning streak was three games. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, just boggles the mind how you can lose 17 games in a row. Mm-hmm. They had a bad offense and a bad pitching staff. Um, of course, you have to have both to be so bad. They were 19 of 21 teams, 19, 19th in baseball and runs scored, and they were last, 21 of 21 in uh, runs given up. What fascinates me, though, is I think their defense was even worse. They had five guys that had over 15 errors. Mm-hmm. And for context, the Cubs... Um, had nobody the 2016 Cubs had no one over 15 airs. Wow. Baez was right at 15, but their second baseman made 28 airs. They had a utility guy. Yeah, so they played like every position. <laughs> Rod cannell who made 32 airs, so just you know their defense was probably even worse than their offense and yeah. um, their pitching. Yep, the rotation, uh the the five main guys that started games. Jay Hook went eight and 19. Al Jackson went eight and 20. Roger Craig went 10 and 24. Bob Miller went 1 and 12, and Craig Anderson went 3 and 17. So, I, you know, you lose so many games. Your you're, yeah. win loss is going to be bad, but they were all uh, pretty terrible. Anderson was there, the second pitcher they took, and uh, he had the worst WAR of anyone on the team, negative 2.5. Wow! And that was only starting 14 games. Well, I guess we should ta- we should talk about uh, Casey Stengel. Mm-hmm. He was the manager, pretty popular in New York. He had he had won seven World Series with the Yankees. But he took over the team as manager at the age of 72. So pretty similar to the, the Phil Jackson thing. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Uh, and he, he was very like optimistic, like rah-rah about the Mets. Uh, his numbers actually retired <laughs> with the Mets. Uh, probably the worst uh, production to get your number retired. He managed the first five years of the Mets franchise before retiring. He had a 302 winning percentage. One seventy five and four oh four. His first five years with the Yankees, he won five straight World Series and won ninety seven games, ninety eight games, ninety eight games, ninety five games, and ninety four games. The Mets were last every year. Um, the first five years with Stengel. See that that like uh dichotomy or difference, I think, sometimes goes to show you like how uh dependent a manager is on the talent on the yeah, team. Sure. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's so odd to me. They retired at Jersey like right when he left. Mm-hmm. So I don't get why he was so beloved. Maybe maybe fans recognize that the players were terrible. Maybe like some legitimacy he provided. Mm-hmm. I think what made this year probably really hard for Mets fans is that the two teams that they probably previously rooted for, the Giants and the Dodgers, uh, had great seasons. The Dodgers and uh, Giants actually shared uh, the NL pennant, or they they tied and then had to play a one-game playoff that the Giants ended up winning. The Giants went 103 and 62, and the Dodgers went 102 and 63. Which, so the the Dodgers, who won 102 games uh, in the regular season, did not make mm-hmm. the playoffs. But it it means that the Mets finished 60 and a half games back, mm-hmm. back of first place. Yeah, 60 games back of, of first. And then against those teams that year, the uh, the Mets went two and 16 against the Dodgers and four and 14 against the Giants. Even against the Colt 45s, the the fellow expansion team, they went three and 13 hmm uh but despite all this the the mets had a uh, pretty good attendance they drew 922,000 fans and uh, by 1964 the attendance was up to 1.7 million which was second in baseball and then from 69 through 1972 they had the highest attendance in baseball for four straight years mm-hmm. and of course the, the the miracle mets in uh 1969 that was like a, a big catalyst for it they, they won the world series and Crush the Cubs fans. Yeah, I never put, I had never put two and two together that, like, that team, the 69 Mets, was only seven years removed from the worst team in the history of baseball. And the, they'd only finished, I think, uh, they'd finished last every year but one, and then that year they finished, like, second to last. Hmm. So it really was, like, this team that had been terrible for a decade kind of went on this miracle run. The, so the Giants won the NL pennant, and then they ended up losing the World Series to the Yankees. So, again... <laughs> Uh, the Mets' big rival wins the World Series that year, and the, the Giants <laughs> uh, won the NL pennant with guys like Willie Mays, uh, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, all this young talent. And then the Dodgers had Sandy Koufax, who uh, no-hit the Mets mm-hmm. that season. Uh, it's like the first of four no hitters he threw against the Mets, right? Yeah. So uh, just put yourself in the shoes of like a Mets fan, seeing all these guys that. Uh, could have been your players just dominating you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it really is hard to fathom uh, what that would be like. The The White Sox in the late 90s threatened to move to Florida, and I, I kind of wonder if uh, another team would have come to Chicago if I would have rooted for them. Mm-hmm. I don't know, hard to say. All right, uh, there's a book written about the season uh, that apparently is pretty well mm-hmm. respected. Can't Anybody Play This Game by Jimmy Breslin. Uh, so check that out if you're uh, you're intrigued about the 62 Mets. Yeah, and, uh, interesting fact. Uh, Breslin he recently passed away, but he actually won a Pulitzer Prize uh, covering the JFK assassination. Wow! Um, but his highest selling book so he wrote a book about uh, the JFK assassination, but his his most purchased book was the the book about the 1962 Mets. Did he ever make the connection? Um. What do you mean? Like, was JFK in the '62 Mets? Were there was connected? there was no connection. But darn, a year apart. <laughs> yep. All right. We'll close out this deep dive with some comments by uh, Mets legend and terrible manager Casey Stengel.
1: Why they're the most amazing fans that I've ever seen in baseball. I've been in World Series games since 1916. I've been with enormous crowds and. Stadiums. I've played before 96,000, but the Mets, I'll have to say, they stick by you, uh, they stick by you in the hotels. They're on the streets. They're carrying placards. They're going through the place. You can find them over here in right field four innings later. If you get a base hit, they'll be over on the left field line. They make up wonderful placards. The placards are terrific. I even have to stop and look at them. I think I made 15 mistakes this year reading the placards instead of watching the pitcher or watching the hitter. To take my men out. Now I'll have to say another thing about them. They're sticking with us. We've got them from the babies up. As soon as the kid get talk, he start to say, Metsy, Metsy, not Papa, not Mama. Metsy, Metsy, Metsy.
0: So closing out the podcast here. A couple updates for you. Update on the over-under game. That's coming to the website soon. I promise to get that out, even though I promised last week. But uh, I'm, I'm stating it here on the podcast, so I'm, uh, you can hold me to... Having it by the time we record another podcast, also an update the big uh two thousand and mvp baseball showdown on p s two paul uh was victorious, Paul won Peter zero, yeah, Paul was victorious in the first game, controversial play at the plate, <laughs> yeah, so you can go we periscope the ninth inning like we'll do for up to twenty one viewers. Oh, I think it was more than that it was like thirty wow uh so you can go to our twitter page and find that uh the box score for the game that was pretty fascinating so nine inning game uh, you won five to four Uh, the cubs scored four runs on 18 hits with three errors the white Sox had five runs on 12 hits and zero errors Uh, both teams had several runners thrown out attempting to take the extra base Mm -hmm. very aggressive base running uh i feel like if you've ever played a baseball game it's just impossible to be like conservative on the mm-hmm. base pass. I think I figured out the, the power analog stick quicker than Peter. I had three You haven't g- you haven't Googled it though, have you?
1: No. Okay. I, I
0: had three guys hit Homers, uh Yuribe, and somebody else, maybe Thomas. Um Peter had no home runs. That's true. Yeah. Um I left Pryor in a little too long. That's what I blame the loss on. He gave up, I think, three runs in the, mm-hmm. the eighth. You, he also sent, or you also sent, um, your last runner to the plate. You think it's pretty unrealistic that the guy wouldn't have scored on that play? Uh, it was pretty shallow, and I had the ball before you were at I third said base. the next weak arm, and I had a fast runner, and he would have been safe if he slid. Who was running? I don't know. He was fast, though? He was at the top of the order. Hmm. Uh, do you have anything else to, uh, to say about baseball? I do not. Well, uh... Thanks for listening. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, find us on Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. Send us emails at afootinthebox.gmail.com. At Follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. And check us out online at afootinthebox.com. Uh, fun fact, if you Google Albert Bell Podcast, we are the first result. Wow, dang. Been doing some work with the <laughs> SEO. SEO. Yep. If you Google Baseball Podcast, we are 78th we're dropping I weren't hell, we like 60 something yeah yep i haven't mastered google yet so all right well thanks for listening uh we have to go play some video games so peace keep, keep a foot in the box
1: taylor back up refusing to dust himself up after duke gave him a little chin music taylor's pointing again